Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Digital 410. Well, that was fun. Things are just uh, freaking out on us a little bit tonight. Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. 10 Productions proudly okay, presents just... the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. What is... Digital 410. I don't know what's going on. Like, everything's freaking out here. Well, that was fun. Things are just uh, oh, freaking out on us a little bit tonight. Hold tight. Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Tim Productions. Okay, Tim Productions. The What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. What is... Digital Ford. I don't know what's going on. Like, everything's freaking out here. Well, that was fun. Things are... There we go. Everything's in a loop. <laughs> That's what happens when you try to share everything across multiple platforms. You've got to close out browsers. You've got to turn off volumes. But let's try it from the beginning. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, <laughs> your favorite World War II-based catastrophe, because I've been out in the sun for way too long, Jeff and I have been gone for way too long, and everything's just insane. How are you, Jeff? I'll get into my debacle here momentarily. Uh, how are you, my friend? Uh, you know, couldn't be better. It's good to be back. Uh, you know, took a little bit of a break. Thanks for thanks. For- should give me a few weeks off. Had a kid. Uh, had my brother move back. To How'd Texas. that go? Having uh, a kid. With a kid? I think your wife did all the work, but <laughs> oh, see, I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> How did that go? Uh, you know, she's she's awesome. That's the that's baby number four. Wow! And it was the fourth like perfect delivery, pregnancy, baby. I don't know how she does it. It it, it was awesome. It's cool. I, I have two boys and two girls now, and and I like it. I saw some photos on Instagram. You had a um, dinner that you uh, told me about the other night when we were going to try to go uh, do an episode. We tried to do an episode on Friday, but due to weather in Texas and all that fun stuff, um, yeah. it was just a audible nightmare, kind of like the beginning of this podcast, but we're all sorted <laughs> out now. So it, give us a little rundown of what you had going on on Friday. I saw you guys were in uniform and you were at some sort of fancy dinner or whatnot and uh, doing your living history thing that I haven't been able to do in months. I'm like counting down the winter. It's so weird being in a hot state like Florida. And Texas is similar. You guys aren't doing a lot of outdoor stuff, but like all the East Coast and Midwest, they're all doing their living history stuff now in the summertime because they don't do it in the wintertime and we're sitting here twiddling our thumbs waiting for the winter to roll back around. <laughs> Yeah, so this was uh, something that they've been working for a couple months now. I'm not sure if this program uh, has any legacy to it. I don't know if this is something they did last year, but it was a kind of a temporary exhibit that came through. It was old historic Salado, Texas. Uh, and uh, there's a little more of a, I would call it more of a pioneer museum than mm-hmm. anything else. It's on the grounds of the old Salado College, which it, it basically in ruins now was kind of, Built in the, I want to say the 1830s or 40s, and it was really the the the, the place to go for a lot of the Texas settlers. I think if you look back at Texas history, you'll see a lot, lot of these big time influential people that settled Texas actually studied at Slato College, uh, but they didn't uh, they didn't take any kind of grants or anything. It was just basically ran on, on tuition, and when the tuition ran out, what that's the not the Texas up. I know doing things independently without the assistance of other large bodies of government. That's not the Texas <laughs> I know. 
kind of a theme. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it's a really neat museum. And so this is, like I said, the, the, the director reached out to me a couple months ago and he said, Hey, I'd really like for you to speak. We're doing a, uh, the, the, it was a, a temporary exhibit basically about the women, uh, essential workers of world war two, your road to the riveters, your wasps and everything like that. So, um, they had a temporary exhibit hung in kind of that main, uh, ballroom area, uh, off the, the main part of the, of the museum there. And, wanted me to be in uniform and i i got our singing dillard sisters that come out and they sang some songs and i was it was, it was really a neat program i, I want to say the numbers they packed the house uh it was a pretty small room but it was probably every bit of 100 people in there and and some local waco news uh newspapers and you know whatever um so it was, it was really cool i was one of three speakers uh two were actually active duty uh, females that are stationed at Fort Hood right now. One was a captain, one was a sergeant first class. And it was really neat to kind of hear their perspective about, you know, women in the military now and how the military has changed, of course, so much since uh, World War II. And then they had, uh, well, I guess I, I, I should take that back. I was one of four speakers uh, because the best speaker, in my opinion, was about an 80-year-old woman who served 20-some years in the Army. She joined in 1959. Wow. And yeah, she has some really cool stories about how rough it was at basic training. She said that at one point she reported to a desk somewhere and there was a female soldier helping her out. And she said she just started crying. And the other female soldier's like, what? what what's the problem? She goes, you're the first person that's been nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But uh, so well, she I had just, a wonderful- just on that topic. The amount of time, not only not not only the amount of time she served, but the years in which she served, she saw a huge transition from going yes. from the way you know the positions available to them during World War II and then through the fifties and the sixties, and so she saw basically that she was there for the transitional period of what they allowed women to do then to you know the. Not quite to nowadays, but she was there through the transformative years. I could only imagine the things that she saw good, bad, and the and the better. Yeah, yeah. Her story was was really neat to listen to. And yeah, twenty years anywhere is a long time. And uh, and her husband served as well. They they got married in the service. Uh, I want to say pretty early on in her career, about nineteen sixty. I want I want to say she'd been married for sixty one years. So that makes sense. Um, so, and he did three tours in Vietnam and, and I thought it was really neat what she said. She said, you know, I didn't go to Vietnam. My husband did, but she said, obviously I was there Yeah, you know, absolutely. In, in that perspective, you know, which was really cool. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, um, uh, it was just, yeah, we got a couple of good pictures. Uh, the ones I posted, I'm just kind of candid because we didn't know what camera to look at. We're laughing, <laughs> whatever. Um, and you know, it was tough being the only guy surrounded by all those girls. In oh uniform. yeah. I'm, such a hard time. They, they got to give me a raise or something. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> anyway, so, but yeah, man, it's been, so, you know, talking about some living history stuff, um, you know, back in June, we had a, we had a wine and wings program at the airport here at the museum, you know, Highland Lakes Air Museum. And that was about the closest thing to living history we've been able to do in a while. Had uh, weapon demonstrations from the O3 Springfield to full auto BAR and Thompson to the uh, shotgun and just about everything in between. Uh, so that was a lot of fun having World War II aircraft flying and being able to, to you know, do live demonstrations in front of the public again and had a really nice uh, 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 band playing and did some raffles and 
really cool. Museum got a lot of uh, donations off of it. We got some tangible donations. We got a 3040 Crag coming into the collection. Wow. And uh, yeah, and I've, I've recently linked up with director of our library, who's also a living historian. She collects a lot of uh, kind of British home front World War II stuff, um, British Red Cross, um, bundles for Britain. So people need to look that up, bundles for Britain. It's 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 a lot bigger than I ever thought it was. It's basically a clothing drive that some New York socialite um, started prior to America getting involved in the war. This was all for people in England that were you know, losing their home, London's burning and everything. Mm-hmm. So this clothing designer or she owned a department store, something like that, she just started gathering clothes and shipping them to, to England called Bundles for Britain. And it was a really big organization. There's a lot of um, collectible stuff that you can still find on eBay today, dinner plates and uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that, you know, that um, – that it's still out there. I mean, there's, there's still, uh, you know, things to collect that have to do with that. So it's really interesting to, to kind of hear since she, she donated some stuff as well to the museum. So it's been, it's been, um, you know, nonstop really. I mean, uh, I'll be in uniform again here in a couple of days, speak at our local rotary, talk about some different artifacts from world war two and how people can get involved and how we keep the, uh, how we keep this alive, you know? It's fantastic. And it's always amazing how, when you take a, a while off, how getting back in uniform and doing a presentation, whether it's a living history or what you're doing, how it kind of recharges your, your World War II history battery, if you will. I remember how excited I was after the, the event I did up in Georgia and then, um, and just how nice it was. And then the one up in, uh, outside Dade city at that kind of like you were saying earlier, a lot of these historical villages are more often than not the, you know, the old school, like ones with the blacksmiths and all that stuff. And it's yeah. just, it, it recharges your batteries. And being a recharged batteries, I just want to segue a little bit off of World War II for a minute. I've been, I have been spending so much time on the water. I should have like a Navy, uh, impression on. I've been doing nothing but working and kayak fishing. And, uh, past couple, I don't know, about last two months, Carrie and I, we just been fishing every, gd day and last couple of days you know we it's getting hot outside you know the 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 water temperature down here is like 92 today so obviously the bass are not big fans of that but we we went out to a new canal today and um it was like seven o'clock i mean i gotta start paddling back because i gotta do the podcast at nine and so we're paddling back and it was like 7 45 and there was like one more little lake before the canal because we're fishing primarily in canals before we got to the boat dock. And Carrie's like, well, let me just cast in one more time. Threw in a, a purple Walmart whiptail worm in a little grass bed right outside this lake. And her tip went kablunk, went straight down. And now for those of you who never fished on a kayak, it's a lot harder than fishing on a, a bass boat or on the shore because one, you're sitting down. I don't know how many of you ever casted a uh, bait caster from the office chair. It's not exactly easy now, and then put an office chair behind you because we're in a tandem kayak. But Carrie not only caught her personal record, um, biggest fish I've ever seen someone pull in real life, she pulled in a six-pound bass tonight on a 12-pound test on a uh, Cast King bait caster and just a Berkeley rod. She fought it for like five minutes. And, of course, uh, we went out early today, so all my GoPro batteries are dead. So, like, I don't have any footage of the fight. All I have is, like, iPhone footage of once we pulled in, but... She caught 
a six pound bass. And the best part of it is, is the other day she was trying to get her nephew to come out fish. Ah, you can't catch big fish in canals in Cape Coral. You got to get out in the swamps and blah, blah, blah. And she pulled a, a freaking six pound bass tonight. I so thought she had a catfish or a tilapia. I've caught in a tilapia that was about four pounds. And those things put up a fight. But that bass tonight, that was insane. But I'm like so just worn out. I've been out in the heat. Well, not only that, but I got mowed grass. Um, but back on the World War II subject, um, it's interesting when you become known as the World War II or the military collector guy amongst your friends, family, people you went to school with who aren't into military stuff. And that's how a lot of us end up with things because people send them to us, um, which is fine. I just always think it's a little weird when the things they send to people are things that belong to their grandparents or people in their family. So person I went to high school with back in Cape Coral, Florida, reached out to me on Facebook about two weeks ago and said, hey, I know you're into this World War II stuff. I have a family member who served. I got all these medals and ribbons that I have no use for. I can't bring myself to throw them away. Do you want them? So I said to them the same thing I say to everybody who asked me this question as well. If it has no sentimental value to you, sure, send it to me, and I will either take care of it or find a place for it. And I was a little surprised at the collection they sent me, and I'm kind of putting it all together right now. Um, apparently, her grandfather was a fought in the Navy, I'm trying to see what order I want to do these in. I already have one of these that I got off of eBay a long time ago, but this is cool. This is full set. This is their um, Freedom from, uh, this is their World War II campaign. Not only metal, but ribbon that goes on the uniform. Kind of cool, complete set. But once again, I already have one of those I bought off eBay a while back. Um, then they sent, she also sent me the American campaign ribbon and metal complete set. Um, this is from 1941-1945. It just says American Campaign. It has a um, plane on it, a submarine, and then a battleship. Here's something. Um, and then the, she sent me his Liberty Medal. On the back it says for the liberation of the Philippines. So this is the Philippines Liberation Medal and and the ribbon. So this her grandfather clearly was part of the liberation of the Philippines, which is cool because you and I do a lot of PTO stuff. And then also the United States of America, Asiatic Pacific campaign <laughs> metal and ribbon, which is super cool. And then something I never knew existed. We all seen the ruptured duck patches on your class A uniforms, right? And I was talking to a friend of mine who served the Navy and he wasn't aware of this. And he's like, ruptured duck. What's that? I was like, well, after the war, you know, a lot of these guys had been serving for so long. They didn't have any civilian clothes. So they were sent home in their class of uniforms. And in order to make sure people know that they weren't AWOL, they would have the ruptured duck pen or a patch. I don't know if you can see this, Jeff. Have you ever seen a ruptured duck pen? Yeah, it's a, like a lapel pen. Yeah, lapel pen. Yeah. So I got that. Then I got another lapel pen. It's the United States Navy Honorable Discharge Pen, which is very cool. I've never seen one of these in real life. Kind of hard cool. to see on the camera. It has... In the middle, it has like um, an eagle, an anchor, and look like kind of like sails off an old sailboat. And then it's red, white, and blue. And then also another lapel pin. I'm, I, it shocks me to, to get this large of a collection from somebody's grandfather. Uh, it just says United States Navy. It's got the blue eagle, white outline. 
And then um, it was explained to me that these stars are for whenever you get a campaign ribbon or a ribbon, or I guess a um, on a, you, obviously you served and I didn't, but these are kind of like asterisks. So whenever they get a medal twice or whatever, they get these little bronze stars that you put in the uniform above it. So I got two of those as well. So, you know, I'm, once again, it, it kind of saddens me when people send me their grandfather's stuff. But once again, I, I'd prefer to have it in my little museum here than them sending it off to the dumpster or whatever. But you kind of wonder, well, don't you have kids? Wouldn't they be interested in their grand, great-grandfather's stuff? But, uh, yeah, so I'm going to put that over here in the What's the Scuttlebutt studio. And then here's something else I ordered. Because one thing we do here in Living History is we're constantly trying to... Um, update our impressions and make them more authentic right and i've beaten the dead horse about how my m1 garand is a um and i'm opening this up now on the show my m1 garand is one of the um international arms company from canada from like the 80s during the um, assault rifle ban when you couldn't have the m1 garands that were issued with the government serial number so they basically put a new receiver on it you know it's exactly the same well the only thing that's not when looking at it is the rear sight. So I was actually on eBay and I have a more authentic rear sight with the dial on the side. I guess that's what you call it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, your, your winded your elevation knobs. Yeah, and so I have a more modern one on there now. So I got a, I got a new M1 Garand sight elevation that I need to put on my rifle. And it's actually in damn good shape. Awesome. And it's funny you um, you bring up the uh, the medals because you know I think our listeners know by now we have no outline, no no preparation much for our our episodes. We just kind of we do stuff. Uh, well, unless so, we have uh, a guest uh, coming on, or you and I have been reading right. a book or watching something. But and like, right, right. as I was saying, when it's off season too, it's kind of you know it's like we just fly by the seat of our pants a little bit. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but. To, to couple on, um, you know, because I've been given a lot of things, too. I've told people, like, gosh, this is all like, – make a shadow box out of it. You know, I had one guy that, that uh, his dad was a naval aviator from 43 to the early 70s. You know, did 30, 31 years, something like that. And I have his whole career in, in a box. You know, his dog tags, his mm -hmm. uh, certified – you know, his pilot's um, certification or whatever when he, when he, when he uh, finished flight school. Um, you know, a lot of other photo ID and then his rank from Lieutenant junior grade or ensign all the way to whatever he got out as a Navy captain, I guess. 06. um, every medal he earned ribbon medal, everything name tag that he wore on his last uniform in the seventies. I span it really like, you know, do something with this. Yeah. And the guy had no kids, you know, I get it. But he said, man, if I put in a shadow box hung in my house, I'd be the only one to see it. He said, you know, if you can use it or tell his story, you know, feel free, you know, make an impression, whatever. And I said, hey, you know, that's really cool. And I told him, I said, anytime I do a Navy impression, I'm going to wear your dad's uh, dog tags. But recently, talking about medals, uh, one of my uh, nieces uh, was approached, I guess, by, and I may jack this story up, but it's uh, uh, one of her teachers. She's still in high school down in, uh, in uh, Port Aransas, and they were getting rid of some stuff. In one of the classrooms, she goes, hey, Uncle Jeff, we'd love 
have it. Like, here, take it. We're just going to throw it away. So hang on, let me grab it. And, and I, I'll take a good picture of this for our website because I would love to have uh, some of our listeners maybe help me identify this. But these are all Russian wow. metal. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are duplicates, um, but I, I haven't taken them out to see if there's names on the back or anything. But all I can tell you is they're all Russian. <laughs> That's about all I know about that. So, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll hang that here in my little studio, uh, you know, as quick as I can when I have a home for it. But, um, you know, I think and I think people would agree with me, people like you and I and our listeners People are going to give us stuff because they know we care about it. You know, mm-hmm. I have a German SA dagger that's like new. Wow. That was given to me from a guy who said, look, you know, my dad killed the guy wearing it. He took his helmet, his uh, overcoat, and the dagger. He said really took the overcoat because he was freezing. Sure. Um, he said, you know, um, the wool coat got destroyed in an attic, mothball, or, you know, just eaten. And he said, my brother got the helmet. I got the dagger. And he wanted to show it to us. This is incredible. This is like, it was never used. And it, you know, says all for Germany, you know, etched in the blade and everything. I mean, it's beautiful. And I gave it back to him and he just looked at me. And I said, uh, you know, here. <laughs> he goes, he said, you, I want you to have it. What? I said, your dad, I mean, you got to keep this in the family. Yeah. Your dad, you the guy wearing this thing. He said, more people will see it if I give it to you. He said, if you hand it back to me, I'm going to put it right back in the end. Yeah. So that's what it's all about. You know, that's why we're here. People love giving us stuff uh, because they know, one, we're going to appreciate it, probably more than their kids or grandkids. Um, but number two, because it's not just going to go in the attic. We're going to talk about it. We're going to share it on our podcast. We may wear it uh, or display it somehow. And really, what better place for it to go? I mean, that's that's how I look at it. Craziest example I've seen of that, um, especially on a level of the person didn't know the person. This was the second year that we went up to Fort Morgan, Alabama to do the um, Marine Corps impression. I think that year was Peleliu. I think the first year was terrible. The second year was Peleliu. Anyhow, we had we flew in. Well, they flew in. I won't take credit for it. The organizers flew in some Japanese reenactors. Then we had some domestic ones who did Japanese re- uh, impressions. And there was a gentleman. I think I told the story in the podcast before, but we got some new listeners and it bears repeating. Guy was there on Friday, right? And because we were having flamethrower demonstrations, we had to have the fire department there with a water truck in case the grass caught on fire. And so one of the paramedics, uh, a woman, and I think I think it was a woman and husband group, you know, because it was small area and they were talking to the um one of the domestic japanese um reenactors and uh, they're looking at his arasaka and they said has that gun got a lot of value to it he's like eh, it depends on you know you know like any 90s mass-produced military grade weapon the quality of it the grade of it blah 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 and they're like yeah um our grandfather brought one home for the war None of us is uh, really gun enthusiasts in our families. Would you be interested in seeing it? We'll bring it by tomorrow when we come out to do, you know, to do our service tomorrow. Sure. So they bring it out and they present it to him, and it's a pretty good quality Arasaka. It's by no means destroyed, but obviously it's not. wasn't owned by a bunch of firearm enthusiasts, so it's not like it was super well maintained. It's been sitting in a closet for eighty years. 
He's like, yeah, that's a pretty nice, good example. Like, cool, you can have it. He's like, excuse me? Like, yeah, no, no one in our family are firearm enthusiasts. Um, it's just sitting in a closet. To be honest, we, we don't like the idea of being in our house. So here you go. Gave him an Arasaka. He was like, <sighs> everybody else is like, oh, why can't that be me? But <laughs> once again, here's a group of people. One, they're not firearm enthusiasts. As a matter of fact, they, they kind of don't like firearms. And two, they knew. Instead of it sitting in our broom closet or in our mud closet or wherever, this guy will not only take care of it and love it, but he'll display it and share it with the world. And so it'll be well seen opposed to it sitting in the closet and wasting away. Speaking yeah, of what, go ahead. Um, yeah, no, it's, it, that's, I mean, that's, like I said, that's what it's all about. And, you know, I just recently had that happen to me with a, uh, with a Japanese letter uh, that a woman had approached me and for years was trying to get it uh, translated. All she knew was her dad took it off a dead Japanese soldier somewhere in the marshals. Um, the guy was in the Navy and um, he kept the diary and her sister had gotten the diary and they made photocopies of it. So that's, that's all they really knew. He never really mentioned anything. And then he had a little envelope with a two page letter written in Japanese and a little picture of two Japanese soldiers. And she said, look for years, I'm trying, she's not even reached out to a, uh, like a Japanese church in San Antonio or something. She said, it couldn't help. And I said, well, yeah, I said, it's, you know, it's a different language now. And within a couple hours, I had it translated for, I have a good friend of mine who works for the Japanese government lives over there. And, uh, you know, Facebook messenger is a really cool <laughs> invention. That's about the only thing I use it for is for him and I to communicate. Uh, we, we communicate quite often really. And, um, you know, throw stuff back and forth and, and uh, yeah, he had the whole thing, and he said, "Oh man, this guy was commander of, of a, a regiment that fought actually against the first Cav. Uh, you know, my my heritage. Um, you know, in the Western Solomons, and uh, apparently that guy was was killed on uh, somewhere. I think it was um, in a We Talk, maybe. But uh, anyway, so yeah, it was. And she said, "You can have it." She basically they, wow. they FedExed it. They overnighted it to me and sent me copies of his diary as well and made a larger copy of the small picture. You know, she sent me the original picture and then made me a couple bigger copies. It's the two. The basically the letter was written to the commander. This Japanese soldier was writing to his old commander. And these two guys were going back to Japan for training during the war. And they wished him good luck in Bougainville. And, you know, basically it was like, you know, wish you good health and luck against you know, the Americans and everything. And they had stopped and seen their commander's family hmm. in, um, oh, Hiroshima, I, I think is where they live. And they were back there. It was like January 44 or something like that. And they said, oh, your family's doing great. It's snowing here. You know, like just normal stuff. Yeah. You know? and, and at the very end, the last line was, we'll always remember what you taught us which was really cool. And I guess he had that on his person when he was killed and some dude in the Navy took it off of him. And now it's, it's in my desk drawer, but I, I'm, I'm going to have it put on display here and burn it. Um, you know, it is properly. It needs yeah. to be done properly. And I, and I told him that I said, look, I'd love to have this in my collection, but I want to make sure that a lot of people get, get mm -hmm. to see this thing. So, now, this is going to be a little hard for the people listening to this on the podcast, not watching on YouTube, but is that an original cross-slap canteen cover behind you, or is that a repop? That's the original, yeah. Really? What's the date on that? 
That's a nice example. It doesn't look. Well, bring it closer to the camera so I can see it. That's a nice example. It doesn't look dry rotted. Does that have the matching? Is the border on that the the green one, or is that the same matching color? You know how they have like the um the edge. Yeah, it? it's it's the matching color. I yeah. got two of them. I can't find. It's a little faded out on these. Yeah, so I can't find a good date on them. Have you have you ever been like going through your collection and then find something you forgot you either bought or was given to you because we have so much stuff? Oh yeah. <laughs> I'll show you a perfect example. Hold tight. I'm looking at right across the street the podcast studio from me. Just hold one second. Okay. Speaking of things I don't know how to display, and the fact that I just undid my headphones. I bought this thing on eBay probably around Christmas. And I forgot I had it. And I keep it in my podcast studio because of the material it's made out of. Um, the only There's no real form of provenance on it other than the story that the person said on eBay, which is not an outlandish story, so I believe them. But apparently her grandfather was in the Marines and was, or uh, actually the Army, and was one of the personnel who was sent to Japan at the end of the war to basically help with the, the policing up of, you know, the military and the reorganization and all the stuff that we did trying to find occupation. all our occupation, find all our POWs. And so this wasn't a like battle prize, but this is something he picked up while being stationed there at the end of the war. And it's super thin. It is a silk Japanese flag that he had wow. hanging up in his office after he got back from, his occupation duty there. And you can see there's some stain on there, but it's in relatively good shape. But it's, I forgot I had it cause I just had it wrapped up in the, um, the tissue paper and it was, it was on my bookshelf, which is white. And then I was going through one day and I was like, Oh, but I don't know what to do with it because we've, we've talked about it before. Um, one of the mistakes, I don't want to say mistakes. One of the lessons I learned early on, and maybe this will be a tip for, um, new enthusiast of military collection, especially when it comes to um, propaganda posters, wall art, things that you want to display, and that is the expense of UV protected glass and museum quality acid free paper. Because if you get a nice quality propaganda poster or, or an artifact like this that you want to hang up and frame and display in your home, if you don't get UV protected glass, the colors will fade. If it's paper material and you don't get acid-free uh, matte board, it can cause discoloration and all that. And over my left shoulder here, you guys can kind of see it on the edge of the video, is a uh, propaganda poster of a Marine in the Pacific. He's got an M1 slung over his shoulder. It says, we'll take care of the rising sun, but you take care of the rising prices. And then it has a list of all the things they can do on the home front. And the thing was basically owned by somebody who had a um, pharmacy. They hung it up during the war. And soon the war was over, they folded it back up and put it in an envelope and tucked it away for 76 years. And so I won the auction on eBay for like 25 bucks, which was a steal. And luckily, at the time, I was doing computer work for a framing company and traded out because otherwise I'd have had a $25 poster and a $140 frame because of the... And even still... 
it's in my studio, but it's hung on the wall that the window's on, so it's not in direct sunlight. And then I have a screen screen in front of my window. So even with the UV protected glass and the acid-free paper, I basically have it hung up on the wall in a room that has no sunlight in it so that it doesn't fade. But, you know, obviously this is silk, but it could start to turn yellow if I keep it out in the open air. So that's just one of the one of the downsides to collecting stuff. Now, the end of July is here, and you got something coming up that has to do with Walking Point, don't you? <laughs> yeah. How'd you guess? <laughs> they are. They're blowing it up on Instagram. Yeah. So, uh, and rightfully for, for so. People, what's that? I said, and rightfully so. Rightfully, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I meant that with all sincerity. It, it is really an awesome thing to be a part of. Uh, and without Walking Point, you and I would have never met. Mm-hmm. So, um, it seems so long it's ago, real- but then we got to realize, well, 2020 didn't count. That was the year that never was. Everything got canceled. Right, right. So, yeah, for, for some of our listeners that may not know, back in 2018, was a part of, uh, got to be a military advisor for a film called Walking Point. And it's a story of love and loss. It's a, it's a, a religious film. It's a World War II film, uh, basically about a Marine and his war dog and the dog's owner. The, the, the owner said, uh, donated the dog towards the Dogs for Defense program. It was a Doberman Shepherd and uh, follows along the story of uh, the dog and the Marine that end up on Guam. And uh, won't tell you any, any spoiler uh, alerts or anything like that, but it is uh, really a neat film by, by R.J. Nevins. He wrote the book, wrote the script, and, and directed the, uh, the film. It's kind of a long, short film. Uh, it's about 30-some minutes, so it, it's a short film. But it is it is pretty lengthy, and uh, so yeah, got to be a got to be a little part of that, which was really cool. So yeah, back to twenty twenty, not counting. Uh, probably ninety percent of the scenes were filmed in Fredericksburg, Texas, which is where I was working at the time uh, that I got linked up with Walking Point. So uh, there's a film fest that happens every year in Fredericksburg called the Hill Country Film Festival. Last year it was a virtual. There was no awards, or nothing. And, you know, the director and his wife, uh, who happened to be the executive producer, were like, hey, this wouldn't have happened without the city of Fredericksburg. You know, all of our catering was done by, you know, restaurants in Fredericksburg, home front scenes and where cast and crew slept were all B&Bs in Fredericksburg. Um, The combat zone at the National Museum Pacific War was where a lot of the resources came from in the scenes. You know, it, it's all Fredericksburg, except for a couple scenes that we filmed over there near Fort Myers, uh, Florida. So it, it, they wanted to do it right for, mm-hmm. you know, the residents of Fredericksburg. So they asked, kind of got, I guess, special permission from the head of the film fest. Say, hey, look, is there any way it's unheard of? You don't, you know, submit the same film two years in a row at the same film fest. But they made an exception for Walking Point. We're going to get to screen again. Um, on uh, this coming Saturday, the film fest is this coming weekend. Uh, so we screen at 11 a.m. Central uh, on the 31st of July. I'm going to get to be there and see everybody again. I'm sure we'll we'll do some red carpet pictures and and that the whole that whole shebang. Um, and uh, yeah, it's I'm, I'm really excited because this is the one that you know this is where it all kind of began. This is what made it happen. So sure. it's it's a really cool film fest. Uh, to, to get to be a part of. So yeah, really looking forward to that. Yeah. And it's, it's been such a good run. Like I said, when uh, RJ and Chelsea and they got hooked up with the um, 
Florida Doberman Pinterest Society, and they were setting up a booth at the um, the AKC dog show. They reached out to me because it was up in Orlando, and I drove up there, and I brought up my gear and all that and kind of decorated their booth and, and sat up there and helped them out that weekend. And they're such great people, and I'm happy to see that they, they get another shot to to let Fredericksburg get their, you know, their just desserts when it comes to, um, you know, just as you said, thank you and get kind of the spotlight and so people can actually enjoy it for what it was. And if you guys want to enjoy it for what it is, the last time I heard, I'm, I believe it still is, it's it's on Amazon Prime Video, correct? Yeah. Yes. You guys go out and you can buy it on Amazon Prime Video and make sure you stick around for the credits because What's the Scuttlebutt is listed under special thanks in the credits for that movie. And... um they're a group of great people. And by the way, thank you guys for continuing to listen and download it. I know it's been a while. And thank you, uh, those of you who signed up for Patreon. We definitely, now is the time. Uh, we need that Patreon support because of the amount of downloads and support you guys have been giving us. My web host reached out to me and said, hey, um, you're using a lot of resources on your shared server, and we need to move you. And so we've been moved, but uh, let's just say that hosting package isn't as cheap as it once was. And so thanks to you guys who help support the channel um, through Patreon. And if you haven't done so and you'd like to support the channel, um, you can sign up. There's three packages. One's $1 a month, one's $3.50 a month, and one is $7.50 a month. And we do have one or two of you who are about to get a free T-shirt here in a few weeks because if you sign up for that uh, 750 plan you do get a free t-shirt and there's one particular gentleman i know of for sure that i got to get ready to send one out to and um so head over to wtsp world war com, which i don't know if jeff noticed has been revamped we revamped it it has a little different look to it and um, you can click on the patreon link if you're on your computer it'll be on the right hand side if you're on a smartphone or a tablet you have to scroll down to the bottom just because of the way they organize the website it'll be down at the bottom or you can go to d-410.com and find it. And you can also find links to all of our YouTube stuff, which um, right now, I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of fishing stuff. But once once uh, World War II gear kicks up, um, you know, we'll get the World War II content back up. There is a good one. I don't know if you guys seen it, but back when I was doing my virtual race for Spartan, they had a uh, Spartan Anywhere where we had 28 days to do 38 days to do, no, 30 days to do, I think, 17 challenges. And one of those challenges was to push a car 2,000 yards because, well, people don't have sleds like to have at CrossFit Gym. And I thought, well, if I'm going to videotape this, what a better thing to do than to uh, push a 1943 Willys. And so I did that instead of a traditional car. So we, I pushed a uh, Willys up and down the street with a 30 cal mounted to the back of it, which made for good videos. So you guys can find that over on YouTube as well. And uh, wow, it's just been it's been a crazy few weeks. Um, I do want to give a shout out to Jared, who was on the last episode. I did get his book, Hang Tough. Um, I've started reading that. That is a good read as well. And you got anything? Congratulations once again to you know the family expansion and all the stuff you got going out in Texas. You're uh, definitely keeping the pedal to the metal and staying busy, man. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, that's what I do. Um, Real quick, because I do want to do a couple quick book reviews oh, uh, before we go. But but talking about movies, okay. I can't wait to hear your answer to this because so it has to do with Saving Private Ryan, right? I'm not going to pick a party uniform or gear or anything like that. But I saw that movie whenever it came out, 96 or whatever. I saw it in theaters. And you haven't seen it and since? Then, what's that? You haven't seen it since? 
Oh, no. I, okay, I thought you were going to say, well, I saw it again for the first time, and I noticed X, Y, and Z. I probably watch it once or twice a year. I mean, my, yeah. you know, my son Logan, my oldest, he puts it on, and it's like, oh, it's on. And I sit down, and three hours later, I was like, what was I doing? Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, that's one of those you, you can't, can't come help. off. Yeah, you can't help but look away. Uh, okay, so I always thought, I mean, for 25 years, the scene where – uh, when Mellish and the other guy are running the 30 cal out of that little hole in the wall mm-hmm. and the German comes up and stabs Mellish in the chest. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the German walks out mm-hmm. and up sitting there on the step, yep. you know, and he, and he takes his hand away from the trigger group and the German walks right past him. Yep. I thought that was the German. They let go. I did too. Wasn't it? That's not him. It's not? I thought it was. Because I thought that's no. why Umpum saw him later. I thought it was the same guy, too. Okay. So, the, the last time I watched it, a couple weeks ago, with my son, when he steps down the stairs, and he kind of like, you know, he kind of goes by a pillar, and he looks around, he's kind of real close. It's like a close shot of him. And he walks away. He's got SS on his collar. And I was like, you know, that. That wasn't an SS guy that they, you know, Steamboat Willie is how the guy's credited. Steamboat Willie, the German that they let go. Okay, I was going to ask you, did you look at the credits and see if there's two different credits and two different actors? Yes. See, that's weird because I thought the whole plot of the story was Umpum was the one out of everybody who was wanting to be nice to him and everybody else right. was being dicks to him. And so that's why he didn't kill him in the stairwell because he could have easily just cracked him over the nugget with the butt of his, his, his rifle. Right. Two different guys. And then when he was sitting there and Umpum finally gets brave, and at the end he basically stands up and takes them all prisoner, I thought that was him getting them back. But no, no moss. Huh? That is. Okay, no. That, now that is him. At the end, Umpum kills the guy they let go. Do you so, think that was that, intentional or was that a reshoot and that guy wasn't available? That just doesn't seem right. I am mind blown right now, man. I was just like, I can't believe it. But, yeah, then at the bridge, at the very end, the guy that they let go shows up, shoots Tom Hanks. That's so. The weird. guy that they let go, they make it obvious. Yeah. That's... And Upham shoots him at the end because he actually said Upham. He knew him and he shoots him. That's weird. But the guy that stabbed Mellish and huh. walks right past is not the same German soldier. I, you know, it's funny. I always thought so, and then last time I saw it, I had a brief moment. I was like, "Is that the same guy?" Of course it is, because I mean, I think we all. That's so we all weird. Just <laughs> you know, and the funny thing about that movie is the first time the, when I got my very first M1 helmet in the mail, when I bought it off eBay, and I and I felt the weight of it. I was like, "Oh, that's why Umpum threw his helmet at it, or not Umpum, but that's why Mel threw his helmet at him when his gun jammed because he was trying to knock him out. I never realized how heavy they were." <laughs> but no, that's crazy. But yeah, that, go back and watch it. I mean, I, I I was blown away. I said, I just I couldn't believe it. But yeah, the the dude that they let go is just regular Fairmont soldier. And when he sh- and when you if you could side by side comparison the, the the two guys don't really even look alike. Yeah. I guess it's just our mind the way we perceive that scene is oh yeah he up and let him go so he's gonna walk past him down the steps and they're just gonna go on about the war. Yeah, because I think if that scene itself the stairwell not the part where he runs him through but I think if he wouldn't have passed him in the stairwell none of us would have made that mental leap. I don't think anyone would say, oh, right. that's the guy from earlier. That's just a random crowd. But the fact that he walked down the stairs, stopped, looked at him, Umpum looked at him, yeah. and then he just kind of gave him a wide berth and squeezed past him, we made that mental jump. But no, yeah. I, I've never even considered that. That's crazy. 
Yeah. So I'd love to hear some feedback from the listeners. Maybe we're maybe we're just retarded and everybody else knew this, but me. Yeah, you can give us <laughs> feedback you? one of two ways. You can either send us an email at info. Uh, I'm sorry, send us an email at mail call at wtspworldwar2.com, or if you want to text us, because you know it can be quite cumbersome to launch an email app and type all that in. You can send us a text at two three nine two nine nine three eight nine six, or better yet, leave us a voicemail. We would love yeah. to get some voicemails. We'll play them on the show. Leave us a voicemail at two three nine two nine nine three eight nine six, and we'll record them and play them on the show. Um, tell us what you think. Tell us what you hate, and uh, not just about that, but about the show in general. And uh, just give us some feedback. Maybe leave us uh, a message of a topic you would like us to research and talk about. And um, you know, it's funny going back to. I'll, I'll let you guys in a little bit of secret behind the scenes, if you will, of media in general. Um, as some of you probably know and maybe don't know, I worked in radio for six years. Um, that's kind of how I got into this. But about a month or two ago, Carrie and I were out kayaking and fishing, and we were amazed about the amount of trash. Not just like beer cans, but like literally lanai chairs, um, deflated uh, unicorns from a pool floating in the canals, just everything. And then, of course, we saw a guy back a Nissan into the canal trying to pull his jet ski out and rolled in. But we were coming back one day, and I made a comment to Carrie. I said, you know, we got this damn kayak i bet i can get a news reporter out here and do a story on this trash and she's like why would any why would they be interested in that and i said one thing i learned from working in radio for six years because that is the media um people in the news and people in the radio are just content creators well just like a youtuber or a tiktoker and what do content creators want more than anything else content and content ideas and so i Kind of to prove myself right, I sent them an email, and a week later I had a reporter in my kayak, and we went down, and he did a 15-minute story about all the trash in the canals. I say all that to say this, is we're content creators too, and we want original ideas. And so, with that being said, if you have an idea of something we haven't covered, don't think we would get offended or not be interested in it. Send it our way, and there's a good chance that we will use your ideas on this show, because just like the news reporter... When a good idea or a halfway decent idea comes through your desk and your boss is wanting you to have some new fresh content, chances are they'll pick up and run with it. So uh, we'll pick up and run with it too. So send us your ideas for the show at mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Well, I can I can kind of whet everybody's appetite with one real quick, and it's something that my yeah, brother let's get these asked book reviews. Oh, go ahead. I I had I did not have the answer i never thought about this before but he did and he brought it up and i said well i'll mention on the podcast see if somebody knows okay the every base camp fob whatever you want to call it it since it seems the beginning of time always had those goofy signs where it was like new york city ten thousand miles and la you know whatever you know what i'm talking about yep when did that start I mean, we've got photographic evidence of the Second World War. We know then, both in Europe and in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. But was it before that? Probably. I don't know. How far back does it go? I mean, it would be funny to think that, you know, maybe some of George Washington's troops before they attacked the Hessians across the Delaware River were like, hey, you know, have a funny sign about, you know, whatever. Richmond's this way. So many miles. I don't know. I thought it was an interesting question. You see what shirt I'm wearing? 
I can't quite make it out. It's George Washington crossing the Delaware River. <laughs> and it says rebel scum above it. I've been waiting. I have been waiting for someone to ask me, sir, why are you calling George Washington the rebel scum? I've been waiting for someone to ask me so I can explain to them. you got to understand. In the mid-1700s, the status quo was the queen and country. God save the queen. You know, everything was about loyalty to the queen and crown and the British. And so when this handful of people got tired of taxation, got tired of their farms and being taken over and their crops and their cattle being taken by the queen's army for their use. And when you live in a nice town area and the NCOs from the queen's army come up and say, hey, I want to live in your house, get the hell out. They got tired of it. But the status quo, majority of the people were God save the queen. And a lot of them figured out a way to scrape by a living. And they didn't want change because people were afraid of change and people don't like violence. And so when Washington, Adams, Adams' cousin, Sam, Benjamin Franklin, all of them got together, not everybody in the country shared the same sentiments as them. A lot of them just wanted to leave things the way they were. And so they were called rebels back then. They weren't the beloved founding fathers they are today. Well, up until two years ago now, they're all getting crapped on too. But my point is, you know, back then they weren't the majority. They were a small minority. They were considered rebels. And it was that attitude and their desire to have freedom that got us to where we are today. But Thank I just thought it was funny you were, you were mentioning Washington crossing the Delaware and I got that shirt on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, was it Mark Twain that said, if everybody thinks alike, somebody's not thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Mark Twain. Anyway. Okay, real quick, book review. Book uh, review time. We need, we need. I need production on the show. I need stingers. I need titles. I need to come up with something for book reviews. I'll do like maybe yeah. a little typewriter sound and get somebody to do like the 1940s radio voice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, we mentioned this uh, the the last episode. I, I I mentioned that I was reading it, and I reached out to the author. This is the higher call, Adam Akos. We talked about you know the the scenario with. The uh, 109 pilot that escorts a damaged B-17 across the channel never thought he was going to make it. Mm -hmm. Actually, was like trying to tell him, "Hey, land in Sweden. What are you thinking? You're never going to make it." Or, or Switzerland, maybe. I'm sorry, maybe Switzerland, but um, no, Sweden. No, because he was yeah, he was heading north of the channel. Telling him to land in a neutral country, and of course, the American B-17 pilot's like, "What is this guy doing?" Like, you know, um, but. Ended up making it over to England. Somehow they got that plane back. Um, and anyway, you know, guys were killed. Guys are bleeding. The pilot completely lost consciousness. The plane went into a nosedive, inverted, came to and somehow got the plane leveled out again. It's an incredible story. And it just so happens that the 109 pilot, uh, Franz Stiegler and uh, Captain, uh, what was his name? I want to say his name was uh, Brown, uh, Charlie Brown. Um, they met. Uh, they found each other sometime in the 90s. Uh, so it's a really cool story. Uh, Makos does an incredible job uh, writing this book. He's got another one out called Spearhead, which I purchased, haven't read yet. It's probably the next one on my list. He's got, I think, another one out besides that one about uh, – it looks like it's about modern fighter pilots. I'm not too sure. Then I saw an advertisement for another one called Voices from the Pacific. Wow, he's a busy man. The, the guy's killing it, Yeah. Does he have time to come um, on anyway, the show at all? It's the only way I knew how. I sent him an Insta uh, a message on Instagram. He hadn't even seen it. Probably won't ever see it. I went to his website. I didn't see where we could just contact him. So um, that's a little unfortunate. Send but me the never... publisher's name because a lot of times you can get through them through the booking agency for the publisher. Don't tell me now because I'll forget. 
just send it to me in a message. Um, yeah, the problem with Instagram and Twitter is the same way. So if someone's not friends with you, that message goes into the other box and most people don't even realize it's there. Actually, Instagram's even worse. They hide it so you can't even barely find it. But yeah. yeah. Um, could you imagine that 109 pilot? Uh, we're going to wrap things up here in like five minutes. That 109 pilot, he put himself in great danger in two ways. One, if some American pilots and some fighter planes came up, they would have probably shot him down thinking he was, you know, getting ready to shoot down the other plane. But two, could you imagine if other 109s saw what he was doing? He could have got, and it's not like being court-martialed in the American Army. His ass would have been probably shot. So he was putting himself in danger in two ways. One, being intercepted by other American pilots not knowing what he's doing. And two, if his own comrades, if you will, would have seen him and realized that he was protecting them and not finishing off the target and reporting them to the higher-ups, he could have been in trouble either way. So he put himself in great potential trouble by doing what he did. Yeah, and, and not only that, he really sacrificed. He, he makes a lot of mentions. The guy started flying in North Africa and Italy. You know, I mean, the guy had been around, and he'd seen so many of these pilots with the Knights Cross. And at, uh, at the time, and I'm not sure if it changed or not, but at the time, they needed 30 kills to earn the Knight's Cross. Uh, a fighter aircraft counted as one kill, but a bomber like a B-17 counted as three kills. Wow. And when Charlie Brown's bomber came over that field, they were all on the ground. And this leaking, burning, shot-apart B-17 flies over a couple hundred feet above sea level right over their their airfield, their aerodrome. He hops in the aircraft like, oh, man, he was at 27 kills. He was at 27. Seven kills. If he'd have taken him out, mm -hmm. there it is. There's the Knight's Cross and everything's great. But not only that, like you said, the danger from his own pilots, they actually, when they were flying across the, the Atlantic Wall, none of those AA guns lit up. Yeah. And Charlie Brown mentions that. He's like, oh man, we should be getting torn apart right now. With, you know, they're not shooting. And supposedly, you know, you'd make your best guess, they identified the 109 Maybe. Uh, and thought, okay, that maybe it's a German, you know, captured B-17 because they did that. They flew them. They flew them by remote control, I've heard, I've read about, where they would enter your formation just to figure out where you're going. And, uh, you know, that that caused problems, too. There was guys that were shot down by us mm -hmm. in B-17s because they didn't have communication. They had they lacked the, the comms. They had the radio shot out or didn't get the freak or whatever it was. And there's a B-17 all of a sudden in the formation, and they're like, hey, we've seen this before. If they don't answer after two or three tries, shoot them down, yeah. you know, because the Germans were doing that. So, yeah, there's so many factors. Our listeners just got to read. you got to read the book. You just have to. It's, it's an unbelievable story that seems so incredible to even be true. Uh, and final book I wanted to talk about real quick was my favorite topic of World War II is aviation, whether it's from a carrier or from a bomber base in England. Aviation fascinates me. And I found now that you can understand World War II aviation a whole lot more, or maybe from a different perspective, different level, if you read about the first World War aviation. So I picked this book up at a hobby shop uh, down in Austin, uh, Fighting the Flying Circus. This is Eddie Rickenbacker's, uh, basically his memoir. And this is a book that Time Life did, uh, a Wings of War series. I don't know. That's the only book I have in the series, but um it, it, it's an incredible book it's so 
easy to read. Eddie, Eddie Rickenbacker doesn't like, it's not his autobiography. I have his autobiography. That's not this one. This is just, it starts out. He's flying. Like, yeah. There's, there's no backstory. There's no boring details. You don't need to know all of what's going on around them. He's just telling his day to day. He includes maps. So you kind of get an understanding of the, the geography and where they're at, but you don't have to know nothing about World War One to really get a lot out of Eddie Rickenbacker's uh, memoir. And like I said, it really helps you kind of understand why the things were put in place, uh, the thought process behind the bomber mafia of, of the Second World War, why they had and what they did. You know, we, all, we, we can go back and armchair quarterback the ever-living daylights out of the Second World War, but I'm finding the more you read about World War One, the more you know about World War Two. Well, now's a good time to wrap it up because your audio's dropping out. Um, it's getting a little weak, but that's all right. Um, we'll definitely check out that book. We'll include that book um, if you want to send me a photo of that one as well in the description on the webpage. Interestingly enough, when I grew up in Ohio, I lived in now what's been bought out and is no longer, but it used to be the Rickenbacker Air Force Base. Um, and so I grew up on that base. And my brother was in Civil Air Patrol at the time, and so we used to spend a lot of time on that base and playing in the old Sherman tanks and all that stuff. But uh, last I was in Ohio, it's now FedEx Hub. So that's sad. But uh, thank you guys for hanging out with us. Um, we're going to do our best to uh, start getting more episodes out in a more proficient and consistent time. And uh, we want to thank everybody again. And once again, as we said earlier, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. And uh, sign up for Patreon, and you can also find all our old episodes there as well. Not to mention all our interviews with veterans who served and who were there. You can find that under the tab that says those, I'm sorry, with those who are there and hear those interviews. Um, Jeff, thank you so much, and we will get together here soon. And thank each and every one of you for your continued support of this little World War II podcast that could. Thank you guys so much, and uh, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Help us get to 1,000 subscribers. Thank you guys so much. We will talk to you here soon. This has been a Digital 410 production.